0: Sheryl Sandberg's name is synonymous with Facebook and Silicon Valley success, and she's the voice of Lean In. Today, she joins us with vulnerability and frankness, together with the psychologist Adam Grant. He was there for her after the shocking death of her young husband, David Goldberg, while they were on vacation in 2015. Adam's friendship and his data helped Cheryl find her way to what deep resilience might mean for herself and her children, and even daring to reclaim joy. There is so much learning here for all of us, for facing the unimaginable, and for becoming more practically caring towards the loss that is woven into lives all around us at any moment.
1: When I saw people that I knew were facing real adversity, I would say, how are you? Figuring, If they wanted to talk, they would talk, but it's so hard to bring this up. Well, how am I? Okay, my husband just died. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. I don't know how to parent my children alone, and I'm quite certain I'll never feel a moment of happiness again. I mean, that's not an answer to the question, how are you? But if you say to someone, how are you today? I know you are suffering. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. Then people can
0: bring it up. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Cheryl Sandberg is the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook. Adam Grant is a professor of psychology at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. They've previously written together about gender and working life. Now they're launching a book and a nonprofit together called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Where I think I'd like to start with the two of you is to ask about the religious and spiritual background of your life. And I've over time come to understand that phrase, the spiritual background of your life is, you know, very expansive. And if looking back, you see this notion of what you understand resilience to be now, the in there, either taught to you or embodied, you know, perhaps with other names. So Cheryl, do you want to start? Sure. Um, You know, I
1: was raised in kind of an odd mix of, reform and conservative Judaism. Mm-hmm. I My parents kept a kosher home. We celebrated Shabbat. My bat mitzvah was something that I took very seriously. My parents took very seriously. Um, religion was something that, that gave kind of a structure, I think, to life's the calendar holiday. You know, Judaism starts on a different calendar year. And I, I believed that the year started, mm-hmm. you know, Around when school started in September, October, with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and I think you know when I lost Dave and lost Dave so suddenly, religion is in many ways the first place you turn because yeah. it it gives you some things you're supposed to do. You know, religion told us that we were supposed to sit shiva, meaning people came over to the house. Uh, religion told us how we were going to uh, perform the burial. There's this. Uh, in Judaism when you um when you bury someone you lower a casket into the ground and the people themselves the people closest to them shovel dirt on the casket hmm. and i buried my grandparents so i had done that before and in the face of something so sudden and so tragic the traditions around the burial the funeral the shiva you know impossible though they were to live through I think were actually very important and very comforting because without them, I just would have had not known what to do. Yeah. That was, I think, hugely important because death, death ushers in such nothingness, such blank. Mm. I thought of it as a void, you know, sucking you in and pushing on my chest so I could barely breathe. And religion was something to hang on to in that void.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a lot there. We'll we'll keep going with um, as we move forward. Adam, what? How do you think about the roots of resilience in your childhood, um, and if there's a spiritual way that you see that?
2: As I think back to to my childhood, I feel like there were a lot of moments where I felt like I didn't have answers. To the hardest things that happened in my life. Like Cheryl, I, I remember losing my grandparents and, you know, not knowing where to turn for explanations, for understanding, for meaning. Um, and, you know, I think in a way it's, <laughs> it's one of the reasons that I was, I was originally so drawn to psychology mm.
0: um, Interesting. is,
2: you know, I was, I was trying to figure out like, how do, how do we make sense of something that is impossible to really understand especially as a kid and you know l- looking back um, you know i guess it was going to synagogue and and asking those kinds of questions um, that really got me interested in resilience in the first place mm-hmm. you know I, I don't think i realized it at the time but looking back I, <laughs> I i was constantly asking like what what happens to people after they die mm. and you know, how do we make sure that our lives are as meaningful as possible? And I think that you know, that's in some ways that's that's a question of like, how, given the human condition, how do we find resilience?
0: Mm.
1: Can, can I? Can yeah, I add yeah, a little absolutely. Bit? Yeah. The other place religion really matters was this period of mourning. So this shloshim period. Yeah. And so when Dave died, the rabbi, my rabbi, and another rabbi who's a friend told me that the period of mourning for a spouse is thirty days. And they're supposed to kind of have that sense of wrapping up shallow shame for a spouse. And um, that really led me to think about where I was at that 30 days, which is what led me to do that Facebook post that was a very important part of the story of my recovery and this book. But again, it was rooted in religion, that there was religious meaning to that 30-day period.
0: I see how it, it created a container Obviously, for you to mourn, but also to reflect um, I mean, you and you wrote this stunning three sentences, I have lived thirty years in these thirty days. I am thirty years yeah. sadder. I feel like I am thirty years wiser
1: yeah, I mean, it was a long thirty days, yeah. right the longest the longest of my life by far and mm. Uh,
0: mm.
1: I was in many ways, marking those days because every single one was just a victory to live through. I um, It wasn't just the grief, right? Grief can be so overwhelming. I felt like I was sucked into a void where I would never really be able to catch my breath. My brother-in-law described it as a boot sitting on his chest. Hmm. But it was also the isolation because— I always had very friendly, easy relationships with neighbors, colleagues. You know, when I dropped my kids off at school, I would say hi to everyone. When I went to work, we'd chat before and after meetings. And that all went away after Dave died because I think people were afraid to say the wrong thing, so they often said nothing at all. So as I moved through those days, I was feeling increasingly isolated. I would go to work, and people just looked at me like I was a ghost or a deer. They were a deer in the headlights. They didn't know what to say. And so, as that thirty-day period approached, I wrote this Facebook post based on my journals, which expressed how I felt. And the night before, I went to sleep thinking there is no way I'm posting this thing. It is too raw, too revealing. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. No, I definitely uh-huh. wasn't going to post it. But then I woke up the next morning, and you know, my religion told me this was supposed to be kind of the end of mourning, and it was not, and it was not going to mm-hmm. be. And um, I felt so overwhelmingly awful. That I thought, you know what, I might as well post this thing because things can't get worse, <laughs> and it really made a difference because you know a friend of mine at work said that she had been driving by my house and not coming in. She started coming in. Right, right. People at work admitted they were terrified when they saw me of saying the wrong thing. Um, you know, strangers posted about their experiences. A woman posted from the NICU that she had just gave birth, or she had one surviving twin, mm. and. One had died, and so she was struggling to find the strength to give the surviving twin a, a wonderful life. And other people posted on them, and I felt less alone.
0: People weren't walking up to me and saying, how are you? Right. Or, or not walking up to you because they didn't know what to Correct. say.
1: Correct, Exactly.
0: And this book you've written together, um, I'm so happy to talk to both of you because one thing that radiates from the pages is – It's not just that you're co-authors, that you're you're friends, right? That it grows out of friendship. And, in fact, I mean, Adam got on a plane and came out to to be with you. Twice. Twice. (laughs) Um, So did not walk away. Um, You'd gotten to know each other together with Dave, right, when Dave was CEO at SurveyMonkey. And and it sounds like that Adam started talking about resilience right away, that you— Thought that this was about the ability, could you endure this pain? But the question, Adam, you were asking is how instead ask how you can become resilient. And there's this language in the book resilience is the strength and speed of our response to adversity, and we can build it. It isn't about having a backbone, it's about strengthening the muscles around our backbone. It's such a helpful image and new.
2: Yeah, I guess, you know, for me, this started when Dave and I really connected. And Dave was, uh, you know, was one of the leaders that I really looked up to, but also, you know, as a, a husband and a father, like the, the mm-hmm. kind of person that I wanted to be. And uh, it was, I mean, it was just devastating for all of us. Um, when we got the news, and I remember talking with my wife, Allison, about you know, whether, whether I should go, You know it might be a time that it would be difficult for people to, to have company. And you know, she, she said, no, of course you go. So I flew out, and I remember um, being at the, the Shiva afterward, and people were, were starting to leave. And Cheryl and her family and some close friends were there, and, and she said, stay. And Cheryl's question was, what do I do for my kids? How do I help them? Hmm. And all of a sudden, I felt like all these hours that I've spent um, learning about psychology, about, you know, how to deal with tough situations. Um, like there was a purpose to those hours all of a sudden. Hmm. And, you know, maybe I had some knowledge that I could share that, you know, that would help our kids through it. And so we, we started talking about what do we know about resilience? Where does it come from? Um, how do you, you know, how do you help kids find strength in just the, the worst of situations?
1: You know, Dave gave me a lot of amazing things. And one of the things Dave gave me was Adam. I mean, Dave had a lot of speakers at SurveyMonkey. Adam was the only one he ever invited over for dinner. We were very protective of family dinner, but he said this guy's incredible. I invited him over for dinner, which I don't know if Dave ever did that. And Adam and I started talking about his work, and I asked him, you know, have you ever cut your data by gender? And then we started talking about gender, and we started writing together. We wrote four New York Times pieces together before Dave died. And when Dave died, I mean, I was in a total fog. I didn't invite anyone to the funeral you know, people came. And I was so relieved Adam was there. And I just looked at him and said, what do I do to get my kids through this? Yeah, Like, there has to be, I just, for me, the research is incredibly comforting, because there's my experience, there's other individual experience. But if people have studied this and figured out what works on large numbers of people, that's better. And hmm. Adam just followed up. He said, yes, there's research. And I'm looking at it. And I And then he would literally send me, like, research summaries, like, okay, there's been one longitudinal study of children who have lost fathers or, sorry, lost parents and gone through divorce. Here's what it says. And for me, that was incredibly comforting. And then I would started calling him more and more with, okay, here's what happened today and here's how I feel and it's never going to feel better. And Adam would say, that's called permanence. That's one of the traps, <laughs> right. And no, but for me, the research and the data, I, I'm not saying it would be for everyone, but for me, it was unbelievably helpful. So mm-hmm. personalization, blaming myself. You know, I blamed myself that Dave died. The early reports were that he died falling off an exercise machine. So I thought uh, if I only yeah. found him sooner, right he would be alive. And my my brother is a neurosurgeon. So this is his field. And he sat there with me at first patiently and increasingly with more anxiety and, and passion in his voice. Cheryl, Dave did not die falling off an exercise machine. If Dave fell off an exercise machine, he would have broken an arm. Not died. He did not die that way. And then when we got the autopsy report and it was coronary artery disease, you know, it wasn't diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And should I have known and then when I finally got over, okay, I'm not a doctor. It's not my fault I didn't diagnose a disease that his doctors didn't diagnose. I blame myself for disrupting my mom's life, disrupting, you know, the Facebook client meetings, uh-huh. just disrupting Adam's life. And Adam said to me, he said, if you don't get over the personalization, you are not going to recover. And if you don't recover, your kids
0: can't recover. Wow. That's what psychologists know. I think you said somewhere that he told you to ban the word sorry, that you were always saying sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. But the reason
1: reason that was so important was he could prove it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He said people have studied this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, forgiving yourself is a really hard thing. But if you tell me if I don't forgive myself, my kids are never going to recover. I'm willing to do anything. And so Adam just kept weighing in at these critical moments with here's how to think about this. Here's what we know.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg and psychologist Adam Grant. And Adam, I want to ask you, you know, I started hearing this term resilience emerging Um a few years ago, kind of early twenty-first century, often in the context of social infrastructure or you know, resilient ecosystems, resilient cities like after Hurricane Sandy, how do you how to rebuild and plan assuming that the unexpected catastrophe will come, but planning so that so that what knocks out one part of the system won't bring down the whole thing. And you're talking about resilient human beings. And I'm curious about is this a term that has had kind of a new birth or a renaissance in psychology as well.
2: Yeah, it, it is. So it it started to gain a lot of traction in the 1990s, uh, late 90s, when Marty Seligman, a colleague of mine here at Penn, uh, pioneered this this whole initiative on positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, as psychologists, we know a lot about how to treat suffering. You know, We can help people become less depressed and less anxious, but we don't know a whole lot about how to help people flourish and you know if like it's nice to cure some of the worst ills that people face in their lives but what about really living the best lives we can how do we do that and there were there were a lot of a lot of experts who had been you know sort of already tackling this question and and marty brought them together and resilience really grew out of a desire to say look it's it's not enough just to you know help people recover and you know, try to mend them when they're broken. Yeah. Um, we need to understand how to help people find and build strength Right. Uh, when, you know, when the the worst things happen to them, which they do. And it's just exploded as a field of research. Um, there, there are researchers studying, you know, how to build resilience in kids, uh, how to find resilience after divorce, after loss, um, how to help communities build right. resilience together. Right. And and part of what what Cheryl and I were I think both really influenced by was just how much knowledge is out there that hasn't been shared more broadly yet.
0: And it, it's a new paradigm in American culture. And, you know, the three of us in very different ways are great examples of, you know, I mean, I think we, you know, I think we were probably born into this world of, you know, be successful, be powerful. Um, and, you know, the whole like American, like self-made man thing. And, this This is actually being reality based and saying, don't expect that things will always progress and always get better because life is not like that. And Cheryl, I think about you, you know, you are the chief operating officer of this incredibly powerful company and force in the world. I mean, you're you, as a human being and as a professional person, you create order. Out of, you know, the the constant potential of chaos. And so I've got to imagine that this was also a paradigm shift in your approach to your life as Dave's death opened up, you know, just the ground beneath your feet. Krista.
2: I have to say, I don't think Cheryl will tell you this, uh, but her co- author on Lean In Nell Scoval, who edited this book with us, uh, once told me that she just for a day she wanted to own Cheryl's brain because <laughs> it would be so convenient to have like a brain full of color coded sticky notes all perfectly organized, <laughs> right. and we all live in constant envy of that
0: uh-huh but so but even more so, it must be just it must have been such a shock to your system it
1: it is such an astute question because yes until this happened certainly I'd faced challenges everyone does i had gotten divorced very young and that was something that was hard for me to get over and process but there was no order to this because it didn't make sense that a grown healthy man who woke up in the morning and went on a hike could just die literally could go to the gym and die and out of nowhere at 47 years old and you know my story, and I think the story of so many people facing hardship, is this balancing between no control, no order, accepting the grief, accepting your emotions, and trying to find things we can do that give us some sense of control. Right,
0: right.
1: And in that first bucket, I learned a lot. My friend Davis Guggenheim, who makes documentary films, he and his wife Lisa came and slept over uh, early on, and he just looked at me and said, you know, Cheryl, when I film movies and I do documentaries, I can't write them in advance. I have to let the story unfold. He knows me well. He said, Cheryl, your grief has to unfold. You cannot put it in a box and wrap it up. There is no sticky note for this. Mm-hmm. There is no Excel spreadsheet. And you have to let this happen. My rabbi told me to lean into the suck. Yeah. Not what I meant not <sighs> yes. what I meant by lean in, but what we're saying was you've no control over your feelings here. And Learning to accept the lack of control that I have was a huge part of this for me. But then on the other hand, in the void, in the grief, in the isolation, as the mother of two grieving children, my children were seven and ten. And they lost their father overnight. You want something to do. So there were moments where I was just desperate for anything I could do which I think did give me some sense of hope and some sense of control. And that's where the research and the steps I could take came in.
0: Yeah. Um, well, so let, let's talk about some of those practical learning, those tools for living that you've written about. And um, I mean, some of them are like you were surprised early on that Adam counseled you to focus on worst case scenarios. You said, oh, no, this a, was crazy. You said it's a fine That's old crazy. Jewish tradition, so it made sense on some level, but it didn't make sense on another. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, Adam looked at me and said, "You should think about how things
0: could be worse." And I
1: thought to myself, "Dave just died suddenly. How can things be worse?" Yeah. And he said, "He could have had that cardiac arrhythmia driving your children." I mean, in that instant, to this day, when I say that, I feel better. I'm like, "Okay, my kids are alive. I'm fine." <laughs> Literally, because think about the devastation I felt with Dave and the devastation of losing all three of them in one instant, which happens. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're better. And you would think that when you're trying to find a way forward, you want to think about happy thoughts. But actually what you want to do is find gratitude,
2: gratitude mm. for mm. what's
1: left. And one way of doing that is think about how things could be worse. And that really did work because – The minute I thought about the fact that I'm lucky to still have my children alive, what I found was gratitude. Thank God my children are alive, and I can raise them, and I can raise them to know who their father was, who their father would have wanted them to be.
0: Adam, do you know scientifically how this is grounded in our psyches? It's a a strange way for us to be, but how does it work?
2: Oh, I I wish I had a good answer to that. I I will tell you that long before I read the research on it, um, we had a a close family member, Jeff Zaslow, who was killed in a car accident. And I had a really hard time just dealing with how something so horrible and senseless could happen to someone so good. And um, Allison, my wife, has a background in psychiatry. And she was the one who taught me to consider how things could be worse. And I had the same reaction at the time that Cheryl did. Like, this is one of the most awful things that could happen to a person, to a family. How can you imagine it being worse? And after that, I you know I got really curious about how did, how does that work? And I think the I mean, there's there's an evolutionary story to be told about it, which is that you know we're we're wired to pay attention to bad things. Hmm. Right, like prehistorically, if you see something moving in the jungle and you're like, "Huh, it's orange with black stripes and sharp things coming out of its mouth," I wonder if that could be a tiger. You would die. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if if you immediately were like, "Tiger, run!" you would (laughs) you would live and and sort of survive and pass on your genes. And I think because of that, like a lot of times, bad is stronger than good. And when something bad happens, it's really hard to replace the negative thoughts with positive ones. Mm. Um, um, and so it's almost like the you know thinking about how things could be worse. It's like a it's a trick uh, that we we use to capture our attention because we're so good at focusing on what's going wrong uh, that then we can we can sort of take advantage of that wiring as opposed to trying to work against it.
0: Hmm. And Cheryl, as you said, you have drawn both of you. You've drawn on a lot of data, but also a lot of other stories. I mean, there's a chapter called "The Elephant in the Room." But you know, what strikes me about that also is, and I think probably starting with that first Facebook post you wrote 30 days after Dave's death, um, it's not just that that elephant is, is in the room, but that you realize that unfathomable grief and loss are all around, walking around in all kinds of lives all around us. Did that, did that take you to something? I because you tell so many stories of things that people share with you or that you learn or that you see or take in in a different way.
1: No, absolutely. What happens is that when bad things happen, we deal with the the repercussions of that, the grief, the loss, the cancer treatments, the chemotherapy, the nausea, you know, the financial hardship of a parent going to prison. But then we also deal with all of the things that come from silence, isolation, Mm. lack of support, in many cases, shame. You know, if you want to silence a room, get diagnosed with cancer. Mm. No one knows what to say. And you're right that there is a lot of adversity and a lot of hardship all around us, and it is not quiet in a room. It is an elephant, and it is following us. And what it does is it cuts us off from the human connection we need to get through things when we most need it. And I realize, having been on the other side of this, I got this wrong many times. If I had a friend, and I had many friends who'd been diagnosed with cancer over the years, I used to say, I know you're going to get through it. All right. And I would say it once and not mention it again. Okay. So what's wrong with that? A lot. They don't know they're going to get through it. So when I say, I know you're going to get through it, what I'm actually doing, I thought I was being hopeful. But what I was really doing was not acknowledging the state they're in because the little voice in their head is saying, you don't know that I'm going to get through it. I don't know. And then I would never mention it again because I thought if I brought it up, I was reminding them they had cancer. Losing Dave taught me how ludicrous that was. You can't remind me I lost Dave. I know that. So when no one says anything, I just feel alone. It's not that I forget. And so now what I do, you know, if someone gets diagnosed with cancer, and unfortunately this has happened many times since I lost Dave, I will say to them, I know you don't know if you're going to get through this, and I don't know either, but you're not going to go through it alone. I'm here Mm -hmm. to help you. Mm -hmm. I'm here to do it with you. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I see them, I will ask them, how are you feeling? Not how are you, but how are you feeling? How is it going? Do right. you want to right. talk about this? Right. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't.
0: But I don't let the silence overtake our relationship. That's it's so helpful. I you also have this stunning sentence um, from somebody named Mitch Carmody: um, "Our child dies a second time when no one speaks their name."
2: Yeah, that that was um, one of the, one of the things that happened in the the months after Dave passed away was. Uh, people started sending, you know, all sorts of stories and interviews and quotes and poems, and Cheryl shared a lot of the most moving and meaningful ones with, you know, with a group of family and friends, um, which I think really, really helped us know what she was going through. Yeah. And I, I, know I was stopped cold when I read this. This was from a, you know, a father who who lost a child, and found that afterward people were afraid to mention it. Same thing that Cheryl was talking about. They didn't want to remind him. And he, he wanted more than anything to remember his child. And that means we, we have to have the conversation.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg through our website on being.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a frank and vulnerable conversation with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg and Wharton psychologist Adam Grant. After Cheryl's husband David Goldberg died suddenly at 47, she found great comfort and guidance in Adam's friendship and his research into resilience. They've just launched Option B, a book and a nonprofit about the learnings that resulted. I want to read a paragraph in the book just because I I feel like so many important, really practical tools have just been laid out. But here's another scenario you described. You said... People continually avoided the subject. I went to a close friend's house for dinner, and obviously, I know you're not saying that anybody means to to be doing right. This is just that we are we have to learn, right? Anyway, people continually avoided the subject. I went to a close friend's house for dinner, and she and her husband made small talk the entire time. I listened, mystified, keeping my thoughts to myself. You're right; the Warriors are totally crushing it. And you know who really loved that team? Dave. I got emails from friends asking me to fly to their cities to speak at their events without acknowledging that travel might be more difficult for me now. Oh, it's just an overnight? Sure. I'll see if Dave can come back to life and put the kids to bed. I ran into friends at local parks who talked about the weather. Yes, the weather has been weird with all this rain and death.
1: That's what it felt like.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are just such everyday interactions, right?
1: Yeah. And no one meant harm by it. And I saw myself in a lot of those missteps that people made to me. When I saw people that I knew were facing real adversity, I would say, how are you? Figuring if they wanted to talk, they would talk. But it's so hard to bring this up. Well, how am I? Okay. My husband just died. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. I don't know how to parent my children alone. And I'm quite certain I'll never feel a moment of happiness again. Right, right. I mean, that's not an answer to the question, how are you? But if you say to someone, how are you today? I know you are suffering. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. Then people can bring it up. Yeah. The other lesson here is, and this is another thing I really messed up before, is do something specific rather than offering to do anything. Mm-hmm. I used mm-hmm. to do this all the time. If anyone was going through something hard, I would say, is there anything I can do? And I meant it. Right. I would have right. done anything they asked. Right. But you, if you would ask that question Not on purpose, but you're kind of shifting the burden to the person who needs the help. And it's hard to ask. It's hard to ask for the big things. It's hard to ask, you know, please make sure my kids and I are invited to somewhere for Thanksgiving dinner because if it's going to be just the three of us, that's going to be unbearably sad. Don't leave us alone for the Jewish holidays for the next 20 years. You can't ask that, or I couldn't. Even, you know, God, it would be so nice to have someone bring us dinner. That's hard to ask for, too. My amazing colleague, uh, Dan Levy, he and his uh, wonderful wife, they unfortunately lost their son. Mm-hmm. And in the you know long time they were in the hospital with him before he passed away, you know he had some great examples. Friends would text him, what do you not want on a burger? Or I'm in the lobby of the hospital for a hug for the next hour whether you want one or not. Mm-hmm. Those were the people that really helped. So urging people, just do something. Mm-hmm. Just do something rather than ask if you can do anything, I think, again— Kicks the elephant out of the room and shows people
0: that you are there with them. Mm. You you um, quote just one of my favorite lines also from Annie Dillard: "How we spend our days is how we spend our lives." Even just the the ways you've been speaking about how to talk to people the question, you know the the difference between the question of how are you and how are you today. Um, because how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Those, I think, are tools for our working life, right, with our colleagues as well as friends or people we know outside of work.
2: I always thought that what mattered most in our work and our lives was the big moments. You know, the the day you got a promotion, uh, the the major success, the you know the project that really helped other people. Um, and in our personal lives, you know, your wedding day, and mm. when you get to welcome your first child, and of course, those moments are incredibly meaningful and memorable. But when I, when I started, you know, I guess, learning more about the evidence, as a psychologist, I was struck that, you know, it's, it's actually not the intensity of your positive experiences. It's the frequency that mm. really matters mm. for, you know, how much happiness you find in life. And you know, that has pretty big implications for thinking about how you plan your life right? like It's, yeah. it's not actually the, the big moments that matter most. It's, it's what um, Tim Urban, the blogger, says is like the joy you find on hundreds of forgettable Wednesdays. <laughs> and of, of course, it would be great to make all those Wednesdays less forgettable, mm. but it's actually those daily moments of joy that, that really matter. And, and one of the things that I learned from, from Cheryl's experience is how hard it is to rediscover joy, when something horrible happens that turns your life upside down. And you know, the the idea of giving yourself permission just to feel joy again. I remember Cheryl saying, Yeah, how, how could I be happy? I don't deserve to be happy. Dave is gone. Hmm. You know, to, to say, Well, actually, you know, that's that's the last thing that, that Dave would want is for you to continue to be miserable.
1: Right. After Dave died, I think it was about four months later, I was at a friend's bar mitzvah and a childhood friend pulled me onto the dance floor to dance to a song I loved in childhood. And a minute in, I just burst into tears. I mean, it was embarrassing. I had to be kind of Hmm. ushered out of the room really quickly. And I didn't really know what was wrong. And then I realized what was wrong is I felt okay. I felt okay For one minute, four months later, I felt happy. And I felt so guilty feeling happy. And the very next day, I was in Washington. My kids and I went to visit Adam and Allison and their kids. And I told Adam the story. And he looked at me and said, well, of course you haven't felt happy. You don't do a single thing that would make anyone happy since Dave died. You don't do a thing. Mm. He said, you're waiting to feel better to do something that will make you happy, but really it goes the other way. And what he said was, let's let's talk about what you do, right? You go to work. You take care of your kids. You write in your journal and cry. Those are all important things. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you have to give yourself permission to watch TV, play mm-hmm. a game, mm-hmm. even these little things. And the, the big aha of... I think I was waiting to feel better to feel happy. Well, I couldn't go out to dinner with anyone Uh, because I might cry. Or I couldn't watch a TV show because it would remind me of Dave. You actually find happiness in the small things by taking those steps. I started watching TV again. I started watching Game of Thrones again. I decided I was going to take things back. My kids and I would take things back. One day I took Settlers of Catan off the shelf. You know, Dave, Dave last time I saw him, we were playing that game. Mm. That was the game the four of us played all the time. And I looked at my kids and I said, who wants to play? And mm. they just looked up and said, we do. We haven't played in so long. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then my daughter went for gray to be gray and Dave was always gray And my son said, you can't be gray. That was daddy's color. And she Mm. said, but I want to be gray. And I said, yes, you can, because we're going to take it back. Mm. We're Mm. going to be gray. You're going Mm. to play gray in daddy's honor. Mm. And we took it back. We took back Catan. We took back gray. I took back Game of Thrones. We took back Scrabble. We took back cheering for the sports teams Dave loved. And it actually, those little things add up, not just to moments of happiness, but because you can have moments of happiness, moments of strength. And the thing is, I really needed permission. I felt guilty. I felt guilty. And this is a common reaction to adversity. Someone dies. Even when we had nothing to do with the death, we have survivor guilt. Someone loses their job. Other people, you know, if you didn't lose your job, how can I be happy when my friends lost a job? Someone goes to prison. I have my freedom. How can I be happy? And along with all the hardship we face, you know, this guilt is a thief of joy. hmm My brother-in-law, in in an unbelievably generous move, called me months after Dave died, you know, crying. I could hear it in his voice saying, all Dave ever wanted was for you to be happy. Uh. Don't take that away from him in death.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Facebook's Cheryl Sandberg and psychologist Adam Grant. I want to talk a little bit about what you've learned about. I mean, I'll, let me just say the the story of you coming home from vacation to tell them that their father had died. I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking. It's unimaginable but you you also experience your children not just enduring but but moving through life and it feels to me like this notion of resilience also changes the way you think about parenting qualitatively that you know this idea it isn't about having a backbone it's about strengthening the muscles around our backbone i wonder if both of you could say a little bit about that i mean you're both parents but Cheryl do you you start
1: I mean, that was, there were so many truly horrible moments. People have asked me what was the worst moment. There's a lot of competition for that slot, right? (laughs) Finding Dave, telling my kids, burying him. Like, there's so many bass moments. But even with very stiff competition, the moment where I sat down on that couch with my parents and my sister to tell my kids they would never see their father again, it is unimaginable, even for me, even having lived through it, and, you know, the screaming and the wailing and... What happened was horrible. And then I think maybe an hour in, my son looked at me and said, thank you, Mommy, for being here to tell me yourself. Mm -hmm. And then when I put my kids to bed that night, my daughter looked at me and said, I don't just feel bad for us. I feel bad for Grandma Paula and Uncle Rob because they lost him too. And I thought about how in the very, very worst moments of their lives, my kids were able to think about other people. And that gave me hope. I marvel at their resilience. Mm I absolutely marvel my kids and i um were just talking about what to do this father's day you know there are these days on the calendar that just it never occurred to me how painful father's day must be for millions of families and now i know and so months in advance we're right now trying to get through yet another father's day and my son said this time why don't we go have fun all day we'll have fun just like daddy would have wanted Hmm. Hmm. it's incredible
0: and you you also have written that you you stop worrying in the same way when setbacks and disappointments come into your kids' lives. Do you understand? Oh my god.
1: Right? Oh yeah. When when we are having a normal kid problem. You know, I didn't do well on a test. All my friends made the soccer team, the advanced soccer team, and I didn't. You know, my lunch spilled in the water and I had nothing to eat. That happened yesterday. <laughs> I am just over flooded with relief. I'm like, oh, a normal kid problem. Mm. This is not death. Mm. Like, literally, I'm, I'm relieved. Mm. Like those problems that seemed so big before mm. are tiny and small and completely surmountable. And it's not just me. I'm not the only one with this perspective. My kids have it. A few weeks ago, my son's basketball team lost in the playoffs. And all the other kids were super upset. And I looked at my son. I said, how are you? And he looked at me. He goes, Mom. This is sixth grade basketball. <laughs> right. I'm fine. Right. I would never wish that perspective on anyone, especially my child. Yeah. But he does have it, and it is a form of post-traumatic growth, and it is a valuable life lesson. Yeah,
0: Adam, how do you – I mean, you also carry around all this data and this research, and you're always immersed in it. I mean, how do you – do, do you apply that to your life as a parent?
2: You know, I've always wanted to be one of those psychologists who doesn't screw up my children. So, <laughs> I, I Oh, my God. Adam has
1: the greatest children. Yeah,
0: They are the uh, cutest, thick. sweetest, smartest. <laughs> They're adorable.
2: No comment. So, but. so
0: you try not to have them as research subjects and guinea pigs.
2: <laughs> yeah, as, as much as possible. But, you know, I, I will say the thing that, that psychology has just underscored for me is just how important it is for kids to know that they matter. And it, mattering is, I mean, it's, it's a really basic but important idea that I think as parents, a lot of us lose sight of, that the kids need to know that, that other people notice them, care about them, and even rely on them. Mm-hmm. And that just becomes all the more important in the face of hardship, right? When you're feeling that isolation that Cheryl was describing, that lack of control. Um, you know, to know that that other people are paying attention to you, that they're involving you in conversations, that they're you know, letting you make some choices, um, and even you know, sometimes seeking your advice is, is so important. And this is, uh, you know, this is one of the things that uh, that Allison and I have, have spent a lot of time on with our kids is you know, just making sure that they have a say right in the in the big decisions that we make and the small ones too. And, you know, that that is a source of strength, right, because that means they don't end up constantly looking to adults for direction every time there's a decision to make right, right, or right. every time something difficult happens. They, they know that they can rely on their own judgment. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that is one of the most striking things for me of just looking back to that that first time I, I went to dinner with, with Cheryl and Dave and their kids is. How many questions they asked their children, but also how they taught their children to ask questions of other people. Mm. You know, I guess that's modeling, showing other people that they matter. And Mm. I think that that's such an important skill that probably we could all do a better job at teaching as parents.
0: Adam, I'm also curious about the connection of this kind of collection of things we're talking about—resilience, adversity—and to your work on giving and originality as you've lived this in friendship with Cheryl and in your research how does resilience flow into those things generosity originality creativity
2: it's really been at the heart of a lot of my work and yeah you know, i spent a lot of my career studying why givers burn out you know yeah. w- what happens when when generous people exhaust themselves right. uh, or just you know when no good deed goes unpunished And what you need in that situation more than anything else is, you know, the strength to persevere. Um, You need places to find energy, you know, to rejuvenate your motivation. And, you know, as far as originality is concerned, um, I don't know a creative person who has not faced just extreme rejection and failure and disappointment over and over and over again. And you know, the ability to persist, to keep trying, to try new ideas, new ways of solving problems um, is one of the, the strongest forces that, that drives whether people are able to move the world around them. And so yeah, I guess I, I've come to think of resilience as a critical skill for living a meaningful life and for living it according to your own values. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'm now <laughs> much more aware of that than I was before.
0: Yeah, I I actually wanted to um, come to a close with the notion of wisdom, which is connected to a meaningful life, and which it seems to me throughout your writing, it's that resilience is also a building block of wisdom, as much as it is healing and, and kind of surviving and flourishing. You know, wisdom can be connected to things like knowledge and accomplishment, certainly, but those are things you can point at right you can you can point at somebody and say they're knowledgeable they're intelligent they're they're accomplished but that the measure of wisdom is the imprint that a life makes on other lives around it and i thought of that adam when i was reading something you wrote about dave after his death you said i don't believe this happened for a reason but it has given us all a reason to be more present parents more loving spouses more supportive friends and more caring leaders The overwhelming sentiment from everyone who knew Dave is that he inspired us to be better human beings, and he had that effect on us throughout his life long before we lost him.
2: Yeah, I, I, gosh, there's very, very little to add to that. I will just say that Dave was extraordinary in many ways, and he just, he saw the good in everyone, and he went out of his way to be a friend to so many people and, you know, I guess um, my hope is that that comes through in the way that Cheryl has gone on to help people um, with the wisdom that she gained, that she never wanted to gain, but she did. And, um, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing.
0: There's
1: this— Well, one yeah. thing— Go on. Sorry, one thing that's really at the heart of this book is post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And Adam, Adam sharing with me the research on post-traumatic growth, which I then, you know, learned— yeah can you grow from trauma? And you absolutely can. And that doesn't mean you shake the growth. I'd much rather have Dave and give back all the growth. But since that's not an option, we grow. We grow by by strengthening. I know I'm stronger than I was before because I've lived through this and my kids do too. Mm. We grow because we have deeper relationships, more meaning. My work at Facebook has more meaning. We grow by finding more gratitude. Gratitude for my kids being alive, something that really I took for granted before. I think one of the questions we are asking in this book is, can you have pre-traumatic growth? And I absolutely think you can. I would give anything to go back and live with Dave with the sense of gratitude I have for every day that I have now. Mm. Anything, you know? Mm. What would I have done if I had known we only had 11 years? What would I have done on that last day when we went on a hike and, you know, he walked with the guys and I walked with the girls, you know? If I could go back and share with him the gratitude I feel now, that would be incredible, but I can't. But what I can do is try to live my life going forward with that gratitude, and other people who haven't experienced trauma can get that gratitude now. Two months ago, my cousin Laura turned 50, and I called her the morning of her birthday, and I said, Laura, I'm calling to say happy birthday, but I'm also calling because in case you woke up this morning with that, oh my God, I'm 50, I'm getting old thing, we all do. I want to tell you that I'm so glad you're 50 because this is the year that Dave won't turn 50. Mm. And it turns out, I never thought about this before, but there's only two options. We either grow older or we don't. And it is an honor and privilege to turn 50. And I am so grateful that you are alive and in my life. Mm. And I I used to roll my eyes at birthdays and either not celebrate them or, oh, my God, I'm getting old. If I get to grow old, I will be so grateful. And that gratitude, with all the sadness that still lingers, makes my life deeper, richer, meaningful, and in some ways has a different kind of meaning and joy.
0: Sheryl Sandberg is Chief Operating Officer of Facebook, author of Lean In and founder of LeanIn.org. Adam Grant is the Saul P. Steinberg Professor of Management and Professor of Psychology at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Originals and Give and Take. Their new book together has the same name as their nonprofit initiative Option B Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson,
2: and Rick Sarwongchuk.
0: Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media... Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
2: On being is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.